Today on Ag News Daily. Um, I've been to Washington, D.C. several times this year already, um, diving deep into some of those um, specific topics. August 4th, 2023, Friday episode. Jennifer and Tanner here hanging out. Kind of are just hanging out, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a long week, but a good week, honestly. You know, I think one of these days, the three of us, including Delaney, should record these in person. We should all be in the same spot sometime and uh, put the episode together. That would be a lot of fun because we'll be pretty close to each other. Absolutely. Listeners, though, if you are hanging out in the Midwest, you could get wet. We've got some non-severe thunderstorms that are forecasted for central Iowa and western Nebraska. Periodic showers. Some of the storms may turn severe Saturday afternoon into evening. That would mostly be western Iowa with the risk of ping pong ball sized hail and gusts of rain or gusts of wind, of course there's going to be rain. There's a heat wave still hitting Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, as all of you down there are experiencing. Could see up to 113 degrees. Extreme heat and humidity obviously could cause heat-related illnesses. We also got the jobs report first thing this morning. The Bureau of Labor Statistics announced the U.S. economy built or continued to build, added another 800 and 187,000 jobs in July, the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.5%, still at a half century low. Another indication that the labor market might be cooling off is in line with the Federal Reserve's goal as far as their rate hikes have been. The economists were expecting 200,000 jobs, so this is a little lower. The Fitch's credit rating downgraded the U.S. debt since stocks also tumbling, tumbling this week. But all three major indexes did open up this morning, Jennifer. And taking things down south a little bit, growers could lose $1.4 billion in farm subsidies over the next decade if Congress decides to align payments more closely with the crops they produce, said an analysis by Republicans on the Senate Agriculture Committee. Base acres and arcane topic outside of agriculture are lands eligible for crop subsidies. Farm payments depend in part on how many base acres a farm has. The USDA originally allocated base acres to growers in proportion to their historical production of farm program crops from 1981 to 85, with adjustments in 2002, 08, and 14. The National Corn Growers Association supports a mandatory update of base acres as part of the 2023 Farm Bill. Past updates have been voluntary and generally pursued when growers expected to benefit from them. The Midwest and Plains, the predominant regions for corn, soybeans, and wheat, generally would benefit from a mandatory update, said the analysis, which adjusted long-standing base acres to reflect crop patterns from 2018 to 2022. The Farm Bill disputes are often regional rather than driven by party affiliation, with SNAP being the exception. Whether voluntary or mandatory, an update of base acres would have farm-by-farm effects, said Pat Westhoff, director of the FAPRI think tank. The budgetary impact for the government would depend how thorough the update was, 
If exceptions were allowed, the time period used to assign base and how double crop prevented planting and silage acreage was treated. More numbers in relation to this information on subsidies can be found on the Successful Farming website if you would like to look further into it too. Interesting. I had actually seen that headline uh, and didn't dive into that article. I'm glad that you did. For the second time in less than a year, Navigator CO2 Ventures is looking to sue in Iowa County. The pipeline company is suing Story County that tried to block its latest attempt using local regulation. Navigator CO2 Ventures is one of the carbon dioxide waste pipelines going across the state of Iowa. We've interviewed them before. They are developing a $3 billion Heartland Greenway pipeline system that calls for 900 miles of steel pipe across 33 of Iowa's 99 counties. In May, the Story County Board of Supervisors passed an ordinance establishing setback requirements that directly conflict with the proposed route of the pipeline in their county. Ultimately, however, this route can ultimately be approved by the Iowa Utilities Board. It is the second now of two ordinances that have been passed and Navigator is looking now to the U.S. District Court to claim that this ordinance is not only uh, usurps federal and state regulatory powers, but also superimposes the preference of a county against the project. The company is only seeking that the court declare the ordinance invalid, not seeking any monetary differences. But this will now have to be taken up in front of a judge as far as that goes. So another hiccup. We knew these pipelines were going to face some uphill battles, but uh, not ones that you would think are forcing them into lawsuits, Jennifer. Most definitely. And something else facing some hiccups right now is the swine flu strain from 2009. As a new study of the strain of influenza A responsible for the 2009 H1N1 pandemic shows that the virus has passed from humans to swine about 370 times since 2009. The sub subsequent circulation in swine has resulted in the evolution of this variant that then jumped from swine to humans. Alexi Markin of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Research Service, and colleagues present these findings in the Open Access Journal of PLOS Pathogens. Influenza A can cause the flu in humans, birds, swine, and some other mammals. In 2009 and 10, a pandemic caused by this variant resulted in thousands of human deaths across the world. Since then, as demonstrated in prior studies, this variant has repeatedly passed from humans to swine, and the circulation of the virus among swine leads to evolutionary changes in it that then could make it more likely to cross back and infect humans. To better understand this risk, Markin and colleagues analyzed this variant transmission data between 2009 and 2021. They also investigated how these interspecies events may have affected the genetic diversity of the virus in swine and the risk of subsequent human infection. The results showed that since 2009, this variant has crossed from humans to swine about 370 separate times, with most of these events occurring when the variant burden was highest among humans. In 2020 and 21, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the variant circulation among humans dropped 
but the circulation persisted in swine as a result of about 150 human to swine transmissions between 2018 and 2020, Tanner. Yikes, that's uh, not great news. We also don't see great news for the farm credit system. Following the downgrade of the U.S. government's credit, the Fitch ratings issued Thursday, it also downgraded the farm credit system's government-sponsored entity that is tied to the debt ratings as well. The immediate impact on the downgrade probably won't impact farmers and agribusinesses that rely on loans from farm credit very much, but this could be a future trickle effect as the farm credits for banks and 59 lending associations nationally could see their reserve requirements change. So to help our listeners with reserve requirements, each loan that a bank makes, we have to put into a savings account, a reserve, just in case that loan goes bad. So there's a calculation based upon the percentage of loans made, how many are projected to go bad, and that percentage is what is required to be put into reserves, or at least that amount. So having farm credits value degraded means that they could have to fund additional reserves. Typically, when you take money out of profit and put it into reserves, that requires you to generate more income, which could cause rates to go up. The government's Fitch downgraded rating was from a triple A to a double A plus. The rating from the government-sponsored entity created Farm Credit Systems Awareness. For Farm Credit, this is any bank in their system, such as Ag First Farm Credit Bank, AgriBank, CoBank, Ag Credit Bank, Farm Credit Bank, Texas, as well as the Farm Credit System itself. Looking through what impact this would have, uh, as stated, it's minimal in the short term, but the spread between the A and B rating bond yields, for example, is a percent. So over the next portion here, we could see rates climbing by nearly a percent just due to the rating. And Jennifer, this does not tie to what the Federal Reserve is doing on their rate hikes. This is purely due to asset quality. So we'll keep an eye on the farm credit system and ag lending market in general to see if we have any other concerns in the future. Absolutely. And taking things internationally for my last story of the morning with some concerns, the chair of the USA Rice Federation's International Trade Policy Committee says India's decision to ban exports of long grain non-basmati rice is bad policy that puts food security in vulnerable countries in jeopardy. Bobby Hanks says India accounts for 40% of the global rice market. He continues sharing that there are not many other options for buyers to go because India has, for the most part, dominated the global export trade. Hanks shares that the ban has forced buyers to turn to Thailand and Vietnam. As a result, prices have jumped since then. But he tells Brownfield that it remains to be seen if U.S. farmers will see a price bump. We have a pretty decent-sized crop coming, so prices are still a little subdued especially from last year's highs, he shares. He continues on saying that we must have to wait and see if any of that demand will start to materialize here in the U.S., but it'll start with other exporters in Asia. Hanks says that the Indian export ban allows the country to stockpile its domestic supplies and then start dumping rice on the global market at cheap prices. Finally, he shares that it disrupts global markets and elimination competition, Tanner. 
Yeah, that uh, is certainly interesting rice news. Don't get a lot of that to begin with. Ukraine's security service and Navy attacked a Russian naval base on Friday after Russia stated that they had thwarted the attack. There is a warship video being seen of a heavily listing fighter being towed back to port. Wagner mercenaries who have moved to Belarus say they may try to destabilize the NATO's eastern flank. Ukrainian military claims it has inflicted significant losses on Russian forces on the eastern front, and part of those are coming from deadly HIMARS attacks. So these are multiple rocket launchers that are provided a crucial standing point for Ukrainian military. States that the most recent attack uh, after the Black Sea grain deal fell through has now spoke of more than 200 casualties. We'll continue to keep an update there as things go. We see wheat and corn on the rise after the drone attack on the major Russian port. We actually have all grains in the green this morning to open up. December corn up nine and a quarter today at 502.60. November soybeans up 16 cents even, pushing the open to 13.41 and a quarter. December wheat up 21 and a half now to 676.60. Livestock markets today also following the same suit. We've got the October live cattle contract up 45 cents to 181.75. Feeder cattle up a dollar two for the September contract to 252.67. Lean hogs August up just two pennies, but that puts you at 101.25. So that's where we sit with markets. Time to jump into our Friday interview, Jennifer, that you put together for our listeners today. Awesome, let's jump into it. Sitting in Madison County, Farm Bureau is having their annual meeting tonight and ran into Brent Johnson, who is currently the president of Iowa Farm Bureau. Brent, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself as well as what you do within your position? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Good to be with you, Jennifer. Um, So I'm a fifth generation farmer from Calhoun County, so kind of a northwest Iowa there. And um, multi-generational family. Um, my father's just retiring. My son's coming in. So, you know, we've got some of that family transition going on. Um, corn and soybeans is, is our mainstay today. We have had uh, cow-calf operations and, and different things in the past. Um, myself, I am a certified crop advisor of 25 years and, and owned... Uh, my own crop consulting business dealing with soil fertility and uh, precision agriculture, machine automation, digital data, you know, that entire aspect and and uh, had a good time working uh, with farmers all across the Midwest, really helping them reach their goals on their farms. And and uh, the time was right to exit that opportunity. And and then, uh, you know, a couple years ago, the members of the Iowa Farm Bureau uh, decided that it was my turn to serve as president of the Iowa Farm Bureau. So I am now the 14th president and, uh, you know, absolutely thrilled to sit in this seat and, and uh, meet more members across the state and have those agriculture type conversations, um, good and bad, whatever they are. Um, and, you know, talking with farmers now across the country, across the world, and and uh, really promoting Iowa agriculture and, and trying to make an influence into um, the future 
uh, vitality of, of agriculture so that there's opportunities for for my kids and, and my grandkids and, and everybody else in, in an industry that I just absolutely love from start to finish. Absolutely. And it sounds like you've grown up in agriculture, been around it your whole life. Sounds like it's truly been a passion from start to now. And you've been super busy within your position as president the past couple of years. And yeah. right before this, we were talking about what we should chat about. And it sounds like policy is a large thing on Farm Bureau's table right now. So what does that look like right now for you? And what are you specifically focusing on in the political world? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And, you know, part of part of the role of Farm Bureau, Iowa Farm Bureau is to be the voice of agriculture for all of our members. And, you know, that, that unified voice that can carry our policies forward so that we can help help solidify a bright future for agriculture. And so, you know, what's what's on the docket right now, things that we've been working on. Um, of course, we've got the farm bill conversations coming up. Um, I've been to Washington, D.C. several times this year already, um, diving deep into some of those um, specific topics. But, you know, Iowa, we do have um, some, some priorities. Um, you know, risk management, making sure that our safety nets are um, solidified and strong um, for production agriculture is one. Um, increasing the the funding for for the Title I program, so the ARC and PLC and, and some of those things. And, you know, just making sure that um, really the, the risk management portion of the farm bill is intact as, as we move forward in this really elevated era you know, costs are up and production, um, you know, everything's up. It seems like prices oh, are up, expenses <laughs> are up. So, so that also means that risk is much higher in the, in today's world. So, so we need to, we need to modernize some of those tools within the farm bill to make sure that it's a usable tool for the next uh, five years as we, as we get down that line. Some of the other issues, um, you know, the, the not so fun ones, uh, Proposition 12 out of California, um, the Supreme Court ruling there was was really disappointing. And uh, but we've we're we're working on that. Um, we do. We have been working with legislators across the country uh, and to try to find a legislative fix to to that real problem. And, uh, you know, currently it looks like the pathway for that solution could be within uh, the margins of the farm bill. Um, time will tell um, how that actually is able to be implemented. You know, Washington D.C. is kind of a kind of a weird place sometimes. But uh, you know, one really bright spot is the WOTUS conversation, the Waters of the U.S. It's been a it's been a a pendulum the last couple of years as to the interpretations and the rules within that. And that is one decision that the Supreme Court came out with this year that was really beneficial to. Um, to Iowa's farmers specifically when it comes to waters of the U.S. so that we can make sure that um, production agriculture stays in place for for the years to come and farmers don't have to look over their shoulders at the um, out, overreach of the EPA when it comes to the Clean Water Act and, and WOTUS. Absolutely and then taking this this was really good Iowa perspective and started to get some more national. For people, whether they are in Iowa or outside of the state, what can they do to kind of get involved in this lobbying aspect to make sure that these voices are heard and Farm Bureau is getting what they need done for the yeah. farmers? Well, that's a fantastic question. You know, my my pathway to to get, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an Iowa farmer and my pathway to get my voice heard is through the, through the Farm Bureau channel. 
And Farm Bureau is a unique organization, and there is a there is a Farm Bureau in every state across the entire country, plus Puerto Rico as well. So, you know, there's there's probably an avenue within this organization somewhere in your neighborhood that you can find a, a local board member, um, get involved in the policy process, what's important to you and your operation, and really you know, grassroots almost gets a little cliche, but this organization, it's truly the way it's driven. You know, everything that I do as a state president is really derived by what my the state's members tell me that we're involved in. And then I also take those messages to the national scene. And I work with other presidents across the entire country and try to leverage my members' voices in the national scene and influence those presidents to understand why Iowa's issues matter, not only to Iowans, but to United States citizens across any, anywhere within this country. And it sounds like you are putting a lot of hard work and dedication into that, and I'm sure you're doing a fantastic job. And to kind of wrap things up, I always just like to ask this question to everyone because I know there's always questions that we always miss asking. So is there anything else with Farm Bureau or that we talked about with policy that you think listeners would benefit from hearing? Well, you, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, I fail too often to recognize the influence of our members. I mean, the, the things that, so we're here in Madison County today, and the, and the local boards here, you know, there's, there's members of this county board that I know, and they've, they've been involved in the state and national issues. There's local members here that aren't interested in doing those things, but they are interested in making a, dinner, a difference here in Winterset or their, or their local small town, wherever that is. And to understand that there's good work happening in, in all 99 counties, 100 county farm bureaus across this state, and there's, and there's board members that are vested, invested, and and proud of the work that, that they're doing, and they should be proud of that work. And, and this organization has stood the test of time. We're 104 years old and marching strong, and, you know, we're on a path for growth. And, and you know, the, the energy, the foundation, and the pillars really start at the county level. Absolutely. And thank you so much again for joining us today, Brent. You shared some great thoughts and insights, and we really appreciate it. Very good. Thanks, Jennifer. And listeners, thanks for hanging out with us this week. Jennifer will be back next week to bring you more great headlines and good conversations. Maybe we'll pop in and say hello myself, but for the weekend, enjoy it. And for today, what do you say? Should we let them go? Let's let them go.